G'day and welcome to Between the Lines, on air, online and via the ABC Listen app. This is Tom Switzer and as always, it's great to have your company. Well, coming up later in the program, a discussion we like to call with the benefit of hindsight. Now, 70 years ago, NATO was created to contain Soviet communism. 30 years ago, the threat that justified NATO, that disappeared with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yet 20 years ago, NATO expanded, which just infuriated the Russians. So with the benefit of hindsight, the question today is, was NATO expansion such a good idea? Stay with us for that. Well, it's been a month since the federal election and the Labor Party and the commentariat, they remain in a state of disbelief and despair. This was, we were told, the unlosable election. So just how did the pundits get May 18 so badly wrong? Is it fair to just blame the polls? Or the coalition scare campaign, as if scare campaigns never happen in politics? What do you think? Or was this election a reminder that many commentators, especially in the Canberra press gallery, they really do live in a bubble? Well, one veteran columnist consistently believed that the coalition had a pathway to victory, and he's my guest today, Jared Henderson. Now, you've no doubt seen him as a regular guest on the ABC's Insiders. You can read his column every Saturday in the Weekend Australian, and he publishes a widely read blog called Media Watch Dog. Now, Gerard is one of the leading historians of the Liberal Party. His books include Menzies' Child, the Liberal Party of Australia, and Santa Maria, A Most Unusual Man. That's published by MUP. But perhaps Gerard's main work is as the executive director of the Sydney Institute. Gerard, it's great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks for the invitation, Tom. Now, why did the punditry get the election so badly wrong? Well, I think you've got to look at brief contemporary history here. We know that the polls got it wrong with Trump's victory. The polls got it wrong with Brexit. And the punditry in Australia should have been aware that polls aren't always reliable. But in in a sense, I think most of the commentators and most of the journalists wanted the coalition defeated. And there was a sort of projection onto the electorate of their own views. They didn't believe that the coalition was worthy of government. They didn't believe that Malcolm Turnbull should have been overthrown. They wanted the coalition replaced, and I think they projected onto the electorate the views that they held without checking out what the views that the electorate held were, and I think, by and large, many of them are out of touch. Some commentators on the left, such as Professor Judith Brett from La Trobe University, yeah. she, t- she took to the... It was a cover story in the monthly magazine yeah. leading up to the May 18 election... And she said that, this was the headline at least, self-interest groups, the Liberal Party has little left but appeals to the hip pocket. Now, her line was that the Liberals must be hoping that enough of its supporters, and these are her words, are as morally bankrupt as it has become happy to trade the planet's and their children's future for a pocket full of silver. (laughs) Well, Judith Brett is very often wrong on these matters. It's 25 years ago she predicted the end of the Liberal Party. That didn't work out too well. And then I saw her piece in The Monthly. But it's a rather superficial piece and, in a sense, a self-righteous piece because what she's saying is that Australians shouldn't be primarily concerned with their economic interests. Now, I always thought before the campaign and during the campaign that essentially Australians would vote on their economic interests because that was the only thing they could really determine. But others thought that they should vote on 
perceptions of climate change or perceptions about the Liberal Party, but that's not how it's ever worked in the past. And um, and it makes sense if if you're someone on on modest to less than modest means, you're going to look look after yourself. And uh, and I think it's wise that you do that because it's not simply yourself; it's also your family. Uh, I think there was a tendency of many of the commentariat here to look down on other Australians. They thought. Privately, they thought they wouldn't have expressed it. They thought they weren't as well-educated as they were. They weren't as, in a sense, they weren't as moral as they were. They weren't thinking of the real big issues. I mean, in a, in a meeting, I, I, I did very few uh, discussions before the election, but I did one one business um, meeting with David Maher and, and Jennifer Hewitt, and David Maher assured me the whole election was going to be decided on climate change, and I suggested to David <laughs> that he might drive out to the suburbs or into some of the regional towns to find out what people were really talking about. Mm. But he didn't do that, and um, I, I didn't talk. Yeah, to him after I mean, that. but in fairness to the Mars of the world, they, 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 they their uh, get out clause now is that uh, well, they were just uh, following the polls, yeah. and the polls consistently said that the coalition would not win the election, and it raises the question. And we saw the same phenomenon happen both with Brexit and uh, Trump, and we've talked about the shy Trump factor that people feared admitting they'd vote for the Republican nominee because he was socially unacceptable. During the 2016 Brexit referendum, polls pointed to a Remain victory, but millions of shy Brexiteers, you know, they crept into the polling booths, they voted leave. You're seeing the same phenomenon here. Well, we are seeing the same phenomenon here, but there's another factor. It's, it's wrong to blame the polls in, in this sense. I mean, usually the polls are right. This time they, they weren't right. But in any event, the margin was 51.5 to 48.5, and that's still within the margin of error. So mm. it's very unwise for any journalist to say, well, look, the coalition's behind by that margin. Well, but- well of course, look at 1993 when Paul Keating won a, a come-from-behind election yeah. victory over John Hewson. That was a classic case, wasn't it? Well, it was, and, of course, Paul did his uh, victory speech out in the western suburbs and he commented that the second 11 of journalists have been sent along. <laughs> all the first 11 was hanging around waiting for John Hewson yeah, to give right. his victory speech, which he, which he never delivered. So in a column I did in The Australian before, um, in the early period of the election campaign, I said, look, Labor's only won from opposition on three occasions. Uh, in 1972 with Gough Whitlam, he was a, a, not a popular figure but a huge figure. Then with Bob Hawke, who was both a very popular figure and a huge figure, and with Kevin Rudd, who wasn't a huge figure but a very popular figure. Mm. Now, in, when you look at it that way, Bill Shorten wasn't at that level. Um, and then there was this fixation among sections of the press gallery that there is a view among sections of the press gallery and some other commentators that it's okay for the Liberal Party to have a leader who might win, provided his name is Malcolm Turnbull or perhaps Julie Bishop. They didn't believe that that Turnbull should have been replaced and therefore they didn't believe that Morrison could win because they projected their view of Turnbull onto the electorate. But the electorate didn't have that view of Turnbull at all. My guest is Jared Henderson. He's a columnist with the Australian. Now, on election night, the vanquished uh, Tony Abbott, uh, he talked about a political realignment in this country. Let's hear from the former Prime Minister. But I think we can see that there is something of a realignment of politics going on right around this country. It's clear that in what might be described as working seats, we are doing so much better. It's also clear that in at least some of what might be described as wealthy seats, we are doing it tough and the Green Left is doing better. There will be a great deal of analysis of the part that climate change did or did not play 
uh, in the Warringah outcome. And let me just say this as my first word, if not necessarily my last word on this subject. <laughs> Where climate change is a moral issue, we Liberals do it tough. Where climate change is an economic issue, as the result tonight shows, we do very, very well. Former Prime Minister Tony Abbott on election night on the emerging political realignment. Jared Henderson, truth to that? Well, there's a lot of truth to that. If you look at um, some of the what were the very safe Liberal seats in Melbourne and in Sydney. So we're talking about Higgins, Kuyong, North Kuyong, Sydney. North uh, Sydney, Bradfield. Right. And, of course, Wentworth, where the Liberals won, but I mean, it's mm -hmm. still a very big swing against the previous election, as distinct from the by-election. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, the Liberal vote went down to a greater or lesser extent. But then if you look at Western Sydney, a seat like um, Reid and others, uh, the, the Liberal vote, um, and Banks, the Liberal yeah. vote substantially increased. Chris Bowen's seat. Chris uh, Bowen, big swing against Tony Labor. Tony Burke's seat. Yeah. So, so what's happened is that the way it's looking, and I don't make predictions, it's very unwise to make predictions, but you can see that the Liberals can gain more seats in Western Sydney because because of a combination of aspirational voters out there, a lot of people of uh, migrant backgrounds or a lot of people who are firm Christians or mm. Muslims or Buddhist or Hindus, men and women of faith. And um, look, it was, min it was many years ago that Bill Shorten warned about, about the Labor Party losing connection with people of faith, but he didn't do anything about it and it's happened again. Yeah. So, and What did uh, Kim Beasley Sr. say about there was a danger for the Labor Party in the early 1970s? Well, I think he said something like it's gone from the best of the working class to the dregs of the middle class or something like that. Look, I thought it was a, a bit harsh. I mean, if you look at the Hawke-Keating Labor government, I mean, that was essentially a social democrat, mm. democratic government. And I have, because of my own roots, my father had a background in the trade union movement and in the Labor Party before the great split in Victoria. I mean, I have a lot of time for the social democrats. Mm. But what has happened um, in recent times, and particularly in this election, I mean, Labor has sort of halted that social democratic tradition, which is tradition in recent times of Hawke and Keating, and for whatever reason, Bill Shorten moved the party to the left. And, and what happened then was that the basic Labor voters walked away from the party. So now you've got a situation where um, of the 10 most marginal seats in the country, um, Eight of them are held by the Labor Party, including one by an independent. Um, so only two are held by the coalition. So, and a lot of this has occurred in areas like in, in Western Sydney and other places. So what happened was the Liberals held their safe seats mm -hmm. in spite of the swing and, and Labor struggled. And of course, then you have this great problem that Labor has particularly in Queensland yes. and in Western Australia. Well, I was going to ask you, how does the Labor Party appeal to Queensland? I think they have something like six out of 30 federal seats there right now. How do they appeal to Queenslanders with a left-wing inner-city Sydney Labor man? Well, it's going to be very difficult. It's hard for Labor to appeal to voters in Queensland at the federal level. They did it with Kevin Rudd, of course. But Kevin Rudd presented himself as an economic conservative. Mm, mm. Uh, and that was part of the... An imitation of, his, of John Howard, yes, in a way. He said, yeah. I'm a bit like John Howard. He mm. said, you know, we're all a bit bored with Howard. Put me in, I'm mm -hmm. more interesting. Mm. But I'm just like John Howard. But that's not what Bill Shorten said. And it's not what... Anthony Albanese is likely to say because he's so dependent on holding off the Greens in his own electorate in, in, in a city, Sydney. So it's a difficult task and there was a lot of talk some time ago about 
how the coalition was going to fall over in Western Australia. Of course, that never happened. And so the real determinant of the election was that the coalition held the West and, and won in Queensland, north of Brisbane. And uh, I don't make predictions about the future, yeah. but, but it has changed a lot. And what you're dealing with there is that you're dealing with men and women working in the mining industry and in related industries, people who, who want their jobs, who are concerned about their futures. And you've got to win an election there. You've got to present the idea that you're very concerned about yes, their future. And Matt Canavan and the National Party really led that charge up in Queensland. But although the Liberals are triumphant for now, they surely face some really serious challenges, attracting younger voters, stopping the hemorrhage of conservative support to fringe parties, uh, making sure that those metropolitan long-time Liberal voters don't leave the party. Well, that's all true, but then you've got to look back and say, well, they did pretty well. If you just tuned in, this is Between the Lines on RN. I'm Tom Switzer, and my guest is Jared Henderson from the Sydney Institute and one of our nation's leading commentators. Uh, Jared, many commentators still maintain that Malcolm Turnbull could have won the election. Uh, let's listen to what the former Prime Minister himself told uh, the BBC's Andrew Neil in March. At the time of the, the coup in August, uh, we were level pegging on the public polls with the opposition and we were four points ahead on the polling in the marginal seats. But basically you could argue that their concern was not that I would lose the election, but rather that I would win it. You're telling me your own party didn't want you to win the next election? Well, it, it, I'm just saying, if you analyse... That's not credible, no, well, well, Andrew, you've only got to look at the facts. Malcolm Turnbull on the BBC on why he would have won the election. Jared Henderson. Well, i tell you what, the Liberal Party wanted to win the election. <laughs> All parties want to win the election. Look, the, the real problem for Mr Turnbull was that not so much the polls, or they were against him, but the Longman by-election, because he presented that as a challenge between him and Bill Shorten on leadership. The Liberal Party got less than 30% of the primary vote. And at that stage, I think people like Peter Dutton and others realised that they weren't going to win with Malcolm Turnbull, and that's why he was removed. He was removed because he lost the support of a majority of the, of the parliamentarians in the Liberal Party room. And what you find is that Scott Morrison was able to win back some of the seats that Malcolm Turnbull lost in 2016, which raises the possibility that the Liberals might have, or the Coalition might have done better with Tony Abbott in 2016 than with Malcolm Turnbull. He would have lost mm -hmm. some seats. Would he, would, so what they did was they won back seats in Northern Sydney, that they held their ground pretty well in, in Victoria, apart from the adverse effect of the redistribution. They won seats in Western Sydney and in, and in Northern Queensland. And these were the areas where Malcolm Turnbull didn't perform very well in 2016. So I think... Um, so in other words, Morrison uh, did what Turnbull didn't do, and that is reunite the Liberal Party conservative base. Well, he, he reunited, he got the social conservatives back on side mm. and the, they went out and worked on the polling booths. And the other point that's been overlooked a bit, I mean, he did encourage financial support back into the party. So the Liberal Party went in much better financially supported than was expected and with many more people willing to work for it. And so, you, you had people like Paul Bongiorno, who's a regular contributor to RN's Breakfast. This is what he said in the Saturday paper April... April 5, the coalition has gone into this campaign with its credibility in tatters due to the fact that the person leading it is not Malcolm Turnbull. Yes. Well, that's a classic case of projection. 
because you think Malcolm Turnbull should lead the Liberal Party, you think that others think that mm, mm. and others don't think that. I mean, mm. most people aren't very well connected with politics at any rate. Mm. But it was for an average Australian man or a woman living in, a, in the suburbs or a regional centre, it was much easier for them to identify with Mr and Mrs Morrison than with Mr and Mrs Turnbull. That's simply a fact of life. And... Uh, and, and the results are on the board. I mean, Scott Morrison scored well, and those who said the Liberals couldn't win with Scott Morrison were simply wrong. And what I find is interesting mm. about so many journalists, having got it wrong, they never have to say they're sorry. Mm. It's like another version of love story. Although I think Peter Van Onselen, to be fair, has acknowledged he's got virtually every election wrong in the last 10 years. <laughs> but he's, he's unusual. Most of, them, yep. most of them are not into self-analysis. They don't say, look, okay. why did I get it wrong? Jared Henderson's my guest. Now, the inaugural issue of your Media Watch, Jared, was published in April 1988. That's more than a year before the first edition of the ABC TV Media Watch program went to air. Since 1997, it was published as part of the Sydney Institute Quarterly. Yeah. Yeah. What distinguishes your Media Watch from the ABC Media Watch? Well, I think the problem with the ABC Media Watch, and I, I watch it, but there's this tendency to preach and to moralise. I mean, I don't do that. I'm much more irreverent. I have a bit of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I state my position clearly, but I don't sort of get up and moralise at everyone and I just try to annoy as many people as I can. It's well, look, we won't use this program to highlight what you say is ABC bias and groupthink, but I'll ask you this. Does Australia still need a public broadcaster in 2019? Uh, my view, the answer is yes. I've never supported the privatisation of the ABC. I mean, it's not going to happen at any rate because there's a lot of support for the ABC among rural liberals and nationals because the public broadcaster plays an important role in, 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 the, less, uh, in the more isolated parts of Australia. But what I also notice is that um, you, I would say about 90% of the criticism of the ABC turns on 10% of its programs, all in news and current affairs. There is a lot of goodwill to the ABC within the coalition. But if the ABC remains a conservative-free zone with barely a conservative in the place, it's not surprising at times that the coalition um, politicians get get frustrated with the public broadcaster, but that's the role for the public broadcaster to reform itself. But I think there'll always be a public broadcaster. Okay. Now, the AFP is currently in the news for the raids they carried out within the ABC. Where's the freedom of press here? But isn't this an illustration of why we do need a public broadcaster? Well, I think we need a public broadcaster. However, I can understand why the Australian Defence Force was concerned about a leak from within its own organisation about a very sensitive matter about the performance of special forces in Afghanistan. And so uh, if the Australian Defence Force complains to the Australian Federal Police about a leak, I mean, that then that matter goes outside the government. Which is what Dennis Richardson said on 7.30 yeah. this week. Yeah. And I must say, I mean, the ABC is pretty protective about its own its own um, material, I'd have to say, as well. But I'm sure this will be resolved. I don't really think the government's involved, but uh, but we're dealing here with, with leaks by people who pledge when they join employment that they won't leak. So what you're dealing here with is the issue of whistleblowers really than the issue of journalists. Okay, finally, and my guest is Jared Henderson from the Sydney Institute, Jerry, there are massive anxieties about the state of the nation. You know, we heard about Christchurch, that atrocity, and the conventional wisdom in the aftermath of that atrocity was that this shows that there's an entrenched racism and xenophobia in the country that 
uh, encourages the likes of uh, this right-wing uh, extremist to go on a shooting rampage. We're all too often told that our stance on asylum seekers uh, shows we're callous and inhumane in the eyes of the world. We've, we've had these recent royal commissions that clearly show badly damaged trust in the corporate sector and the church. Uh, are you an optimist or a pessimist about our nation? Well, I'm an optimist. What I notice about Australia is, apart from the criticism of the left, in this country, there's a very high level of intermarriage or interpartnership between various ethnic groups. There's a very low level of ethnic-motivated crime. We all get on pretty well with one another. There was an atrocious crime in New Zealand of an extreme right-wing variety, and there have been Islamist attacks within Australia. But by and large, I think we're managing this Certainly in Australia, we're managing them pretty well. I mean, what happened in New Zealand was the security in New Zealand was not monitoring extreme right-wing groups. In Australia, ASIO has always monitored those groups. So I, I tend to think we do pretty well. Our economy is going reasonably well. Uh, our society is a very tolerant place. And the real test is people want to come and live here. I mean, if it was bad, as sort of left-wing bloggers tell you, we'd all be moving out. I mean, occasionally this is promised. Julian Burnside promised to go to Canada once and Jane Caro mm. hinted she might go to New Zealand, but they all hang around. When you go, when you meet a lot of what are sometimes called ordinary Australians, I mean, they don't have that at all. I, I don't, when, when I mix with, with people, as I mix with so many people, I, I never come across this alienation among, among the people who go out and vote on, on a Saturday at election time. You find it among a very small group of left-wing intelligentsia members. But, uh, but if you're really serious about this, you can always up and leave. I mean, you can go to New Zealand if you want to. It's more difficult to go to Canada. But you can go to New Zealand if you want to. But <laughs> Jared, I'm staying here. Jared, uh, yeah. as am I, and it's great to have you back on RN again. Thank you. Long time. Jared Henderson is Executive Director of the Sydney Institute who posts Jared Henderson's Media Watchdog every Friday afternoon. You're an RN. Looking back. In retrospect. With the benefit of hindsight. If only we'd known then what we know now. Well, 70 years ago, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, or NATO, that alliance was created. It was a magnificent achievement, and it was spectacularly dramatised in this US Army documentary from 1958. On 4 April 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty was signed by Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, Italy, Portugal, the United Kingdom, Iceland, Canada, and the United States. This union of 12 nations became known as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or more simply, NATO. They were sworn to stand together against aggression. An attack against one would be an attack against all. And it worked. NATO helped maintain Western unity against the Soviet Union and its Eastern Bloc. However, the threat that justified the creation of NATO, that has not existed since the fall of the Berlin Wall 30 years ago. And with the benefit of hindsight, the expansion of NATO starting 20 years ago, in my judgment, it was a bad and dangerous idea. Here's President Bill Clinton making the case for NATO expansion. Today we welcome Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, finally erasing the boundary line the Cold War artificially imposed on the continent of Europe, strengthening an alliance that now clearly is better preserved to keep the peace and preserve our security into the 21st century. For the 16 of us already in NATO, enlarging our alliance, our goal is to help to build a Europe that is undivided, free, 
democratic, at peace, and secure. At the time, though, many Russians were furious, and several prominent foreign policy realists warned about the folly of getting into Russia's space. George Kennan was one of those critics. He was the intellectual architect of the containment doctrine against the Soviets in the late 1940s. However, in 1997, a very old Kennan famously warned that the decision to expand NATO eastwards, that would be, quote, the most fateful error of the post-Cold War era and a strategic blunder of potentially epic proportions. There was, this is Kennan's argument, no clear and present danger to justify NATO expansion. Here's Professor Steve Cohen remembering Kennan, whom he knew well at Princeton during the 1990s. George was very wise about Russia because he thought historically. He knew Russia. He knew how Russia would react. So when he said that when Washington made a decision to begin to move its Cold War military alliance ever closer to Russia's borders, Russia would react, and it would react in a way that would make us very unhappy and would make the world very dangerous. He was right. Expanding NATO also violated the wise principle enunciated by Winston Churchill in victory magnanimity. Now, Churchill was no softy, but he recognised the folly of grinding the face of a defeated foe in the dirt. So did, by the way, President George H.W. Bush. Here's his senior advisor and Secretary of State, James Baker. I remember he, he used we, we'd sit in these uh, meetings and he'd say, you know, one thing we ought to do is, is make sure we don't gloat. I never will forget a, a huge press conference shortly after the wall fell in the Oval Office and um, we had a ton of press there and they were beating up on, why can't you be a, a little more emotional? He finally looked up at him and he said, look, we got some business still to do. We're not going to dance on the ruins of the wall. The US under Bush and Baker also made a promise to Moscow that in exchange for German reunification in 1990, the West would not go east. NATO would not expand into Russia's traditional sphere of influence. Alas, Bush 41 successes, intoxicated by the belief that the US was the indispensable nation, as Madeleine Albright put it, they ignored Bush's restraint and moved NATO into Eastern Europe right onto Russia's doorstep. Two decades later, the chickens are coming home to roost. Today, NATO artillery, not just the bombers and missiles, they can hit St. Petersburg. No wonder many ordinary Russians believe NATO is a four-letter word. Wasn't it inevitable that Putin and the Kremlin would push back? Here's an ABC News bulletin from 2014. Dear colleagues, in the heart and the conscience of people, Crimea has always been and remains an inalienable part of Russia. Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed formal documents incorporating Ukraine's Crimea region into the Russian Federation. It comes despite the threat of further punitive sanctions by the West. Now, Russia's pushback in Ukraine was a reaction to provocative NATO expansion. Now, you might say, what about self-determination? What about the rights of the Ukrainians and indeed the Georgians to determine their own destiny? They are, after all, sovereign states. Aren't they free to join the West? Well, listen to Professor John Mearsheimer on this program. I believe this is a foolish way to think about international politics. States that live next to great powers don't have the right to pursue any foreign policy they want. 
Cuba did not have a right in the Cold War, at least from the Americans' point of view, to form a military alliance with the Soviet Union and invite the Soviet Union to put missiles and naval and ground forces in Cuba. We were enraged that they did that. Taiwan today does not have the Mm. right to declare its independence. China would not tolerate that. And the United States goes along with China on this point. The fact is, Ukraine is going to end up destroying itself if it continues to act as if it has the right to join forces with the West. And what the West is in effect doing is leading the Ukrainians down the primrose path by encouraging them to pursue this foolish policy when the West has no interest whatsoever in coming in to back up the Ukrainians as they get into more and more trouble. Professor John Mearsheimer on Between the Lines, and you can hear more from John next week. So with the benefit of hindsight, NATO expansion was a bad and dangerous idea. In my judgment, With the single exception of the decision to invade Iraq in 2003, NATO expansion should be seen as America's worst foreign policy decision of the post-Cold War era. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. Now, remember, you can keep today's episode in your pocket. You can listen again on the ABC app or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to the program page, abc.net.au slash rn, and follow the links and enjoy all the archives since 2014. I'm Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. Hope you can tune in again next week.